You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today, we are joined by Dr. Beth Hunter and Julie Malloy. Beth Hunter is an assistant professor at University of Kentucky, a research methodologist for the Evidence-Based Practice Project at AOTA, and now a recurring guest on the show, Beth, I think that means that since you're a recurring guest, you have to come on whenever we ask you now. Uh, apparently, but that's okay. <laughs> well, we're, we're happy to have you back. Um, as a member of the EBP team at AOTA, I know you assist in developing and producing systematic reviews and practice guidelines on a variety of topics. And Julie Malloy, a new guest on the show, is the Director of Quality at the American Occupational Therapy Association a certified professional in both healthcare quality and project management as well. As the director of quality at AOTA, Julie contributes the occupational therapy perspective to national quality and value conversations and provides resources for occupational therapy practitioners to engage in quality improvement and quality patient care. Thank you as well for being on the show today, Julie. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course, I'm excited to speak with you both about the post-acute care systematic review that was recently completed and its connection to quality initiatives and occupational therapy practice. So to start out, could you briefly describe where post-acute care falls in the healthcare continuum? Sure. And this systematic review is a great opportunity to focus on quality in the post-acute care environment. Post-acute care is really that time of treatment right after an acute hospital stay. Typically, it's considered to include rehabilitation facilities, uh, skilled nursing facilities, long-term care hospitals, uh, home health as well. And of course, many occupational therapists and occupational therapy assistants work in these environments. That may include working with patients, for example, after a cerebrovascular accident, after a joint replacement, or these days it could be post COVID as well. And being aware of the evidence supporting how occupational therapy treatment can help prevent adverse events in these environments is a very valuable information to have for practitioners. Absolutely. Thanks for giving us a, a quick overview of, of post-acute care, what settings practitioners will be working with, and, and some com common diagnoses um, they may see. I want to dive in pretty deeply now to, to the systematic review both of you feel free to jump in at any time to, to these questions, uh, but what, what really is the research question that you set out to answer in conducting this systematic review? Well, so this was an interesting review. It's, we've not done one on this topic before with AOTA. Um, we had gotten feedback from members, from um, an external advisory group, from AOTA staff, from a wide variety of people that they were looking for a review related to post-acute care. But post-acute care, as Julie just talked about, is a big area. So the question was, what are we gonna focus on? And um, in my background, when I was at a um, inpatient rehab hospital, I was had the opportunity to work with the quality department to do a quality improvement project and it was related to this idea of um, preventable adverse events. So it was just at the time when CMS, you know, Medicare and Medicaid were saying, 
you know what, if these things happen in your facility, we're not going to pay for the care because there are things that shouldn't happen. So we decided with this uh, systematic review to kind of focus on that because they're such important areas and we'll get into that. But so the question basically is, was, what is the evidence for occupational therapy interventions addressing preventable adverse events in adult post-acute inpatient and home health setting? So these terms, and Julie will probably be able to give a better overview when we kind of focus more just generally on quality things, but they're coming from the Office of Inspector General, which is coming from Department of Health and Human Services. And these trickle down to Medicare, Medicaid, things like that, where are we going to pay for it or not? And so some of these things are things like falls, medication problems, catheter-acquired urinary tract infection, uh, pressure ulcers. There's a number of them, but some of these are very common. Oh, uh, hospital discharge issues. So the, the point being, if people are discharged but not discharged well, so all of a sudden they are coming back either to the emergency room or back to inpatient care. So these are common problems that happen, and they are theoretically preventable. They are also very expensive. So if they happen, if, if a fall occurs in an inpatient rehab facility, there's a really high risk of the patient being injured up to the point of death. There's a big cost factor. So one of the things that if you look at those topics, a lot of those are interventions that OTs are involved in. Falls, medication management, how to, you know, dysphagia. So that's how we got geared or directed into this, this idea for the review. And, and you mentioned that each of these preventable, preventable adverse events is associated with a, a higher cost. What are some other, I guess, big picture impacts of these preventable adverse effects? Why is it so important that the field of occupational therapy be prepared and ready to address each of these? You know, these are very common type interventions. These are things we would be taking care of anyway. But the point of this is that it's really going to be facility wide. But I mean, if you think of it, it's not, not just cost, it's the it's our patient or our clients' outcomes and their quality of life. So they're very important areas. Absolutely. Julie, was there uh, anything else you wanted to add on to that question? Um, sure. So practitioners are are more often being asked to, to provide evidence and justification for the treatments they're providing. And we can provide an amazing amount of value when working to prevent these adverse events. You know, but unfortunately, not everyone is aware of the benefits of occupational therapy treatment in this area. Um, as Beth said, you know, adverse events and hospital readmissions are a huge cost and burden on the healthcare system. So showing value in these areas and having evidence to back that up is a huge benefit in working to help expand the scope of occupational therapy services as well. Awesome. Thank you. And I think this systematic review does a great job at, at establishing that, well, providing that base of evidence in, a, in an accessible way for practitioners to use as a resource. Um, how much research or, or how many articles were you able to find in the current literature related to these events and this topic? Um, first and foremost, I want to give a, a credit to my collaborator on this because I did not do this alone. I did it with Dr. Elizabeth Rodas who is an OT and a gerontologist, as I am. 
Um, and she was in fact one of my doctoral students, but is now a, a, a practicing on her own, doing her own work. But she took part in this review with me. So we had the support of AOTA, meaning we used the medical librarian. They um, provide, had help in de you know, designing the question and um, search terms and things like that. And then we followed our typical methodology using sort of based on Cochrane review methodology and Prisma guidance. So when we did the search, we came up with just under 3,800 articles to review. And in a typical review, you know, you go through all the steps of reviewing titles, abstracts, full text, et cetera. We ended up ultimately with 24 articles. And then when you get that, we group them by type of event. So of the 24, we had six of 10 preventable adverse events that we had wanted to include in our review. So six of them were, were included, which were diabetes management, a dysphagia slash aspiration area, infection control, which also included the caudies, the catheter-acquired urinary tract infection, pressure ulcers, falls, and discharge management. Just a, a follow-up question there. Um, you mentioned six out of 10 preventable adverse events were, were found in the articles that re you reviewed. What were the four that you were unable to find? And kind of what, what does that tell us about um, the status of literature? Like, do we need to have more studies out there to, um, covering all, each of these adverse events? Or, or what can you tell us about that? At this point in our interview, Beth got disconnected, so we had to reestablish and have her call in. So the audio changes a little bit. Just wanted to give our listeners a heads up. The ones that didn't emerge, and I'm just saying, you know, that is in this review. I'm not saying there's no research, but there was less research and it didn't emerge in our review. Were deep veins, thrombosis, um, managing or preventing delirium, dehydration, and medication errors. So medication errors didn't emerge in this because we were looking at inpatients predominantly. So that would not be the patient managing their medications. It would be that, in fact, a healthcare provider um, made a, a medication error. So I, that is not surprising. That one didn't show up. Um, it's not within the scope of OT. So, you know, I, I can't say why there wasn't research in those areas, but I would, my guess is that it's just the others are so common and important and there's, there is a lot of research on them. I mean, from 3,800 articles down to 24, that's a lot of reviewing. And it does sound like these six out of 10 preventable adverse events uh, do fall very much within the scope of OT and can help guide practitioners and, and listeners to this show um, in, uh, in their intervention planning. What, would you, what interventions for practitioners working in a post-acute care setting are supported by strong evidence to address adverse events? So, you know, we had some pretty good findings. The only one when you're thinking about how you do the full formula in a systematic review for strong strength of evidence, we only had one, but we had a number of moderate as well, which, so something that's a strong strength of evidence means if this pertains to your client, a practitioner should do this. Um, and the one thing that really showed up was both in inpatient rehab and in home health that by increasing exercise, you reduce falls. So in those studies, they did, in, they added exercise sessions in the inpatient rehab. They 
added exercise balance and those kind of exercise in the home health. And in home health, they also included telephone follow-up to um, help support people continue to continue to do exercises. So that is one we know. Exercise always becomes a sort of a an issue in OT um, because we don't sit and do exercise programs. You know, that's that's much more PT oriented. But we do help people learn how to, if we, if we remove the word exercise, number one, and get into physical activity, there's a lot of things that could be done um, that are more functional that could also help with these issues of getting up, getting moving, increasing strength, balance, et cetera, um, energy. But also we can help people develop new habits or routines or problem solve or develop goals so that they can increase exercise or slash physical activity into their lives. So it's a really important thing that, you know, we should not just say, oh, it's exercise. We don't do that. We know exercise is good for people, (laughs) all people, every diagnosis, every uh, stage of life. So it's really important that OTs do keep that in mind. And there is so much research showing how beneficial it is. And this is another example of it. So to reduce falls, physical activity is going to be important. Right. Like Beth said, you know, it's really thinking about the activity for that individual client. Uh, for example, in home health, right, it might be um, getting them up to do uh, participate in their activities of daily living. It might be getting to be able to walk to the mailbox um, and really thinking, like you said, about what are their wellness goals? How can they incorporate activity or exercise into their daily routines? Um, because we all know, right, exercise is good for us. How do we make sure it's, it's a habit that is maintained over time? So I think there's definitely ways uh, to incorporate it into activity. Um, in an inpatient rehab setting, uh, I was lucky enough to work at a very urban center where we would walk to the market. Um, you know, if we were setting goals and getting people uh, more active, that might have been a goal to be able to do that. So we would work with physical therapy and integrate our activities together. So that's another opportunity as well. Thank you for sharing some examples of how to incorporate exercise into occupational therapy intervention. Let's go ahead and continue discussing some of the results from that systematic review and other interventions that are backed by evidence. Then we have, in terms of moderate strength of evidence, meaning consider these. Consider these types of interventions if you're in practice and it's appropriate. There was support for in-person, one-on-one OT educational programs in an inpatient rehab setting to kind of provide education, assess for risk, help with prevention ideas, and help with goal setting to prevent falls. So that's another important one. So this gets back into this idea of there can be facility-wide interventions. Advocacy within a, a facility is important. So knowing that we that there is moderate strength of evidence about these alternating pressure air mattresses is something for an OT to keep in mind so that they can advocate for things like that within their setting. Two more One of them was from the three quality improvement programs. So again, facility-wide intervention. And they included multimodal approaches to pressure ulcer reduction. So the types of things they did, which is very typical in a quality improvement facility-wide program, is 
They evaluated the process within their facility, developed algorithms to help with decision making. They included mattress selection. Um, they had um, added interdisciplinary bedside assessments. There was training for both practitioners and some educational materials for uh, patients to reduce the pressure ulcers. The last one was related to hospital readmissions, which is really important for many reasons. We don't want people to have to go back into the hospital quickly after they've been discharged or from any setting. And so with home health clients, there is, particularly with heart problems, heart failure and things of that nature, there's a really high incidence of being readmitted to hospitals because probably because people are scared. You know, if all of a sudden you're not feeling well and you've got a heart problem, you want to get to the hospital. So one of the things that this intervention was, was to help with system um, symptom assessment, helping with medication management, in increasing care coordination, patient education, again, goal setting. So these were things to help reduce particularly depression, which, and to increase a sense of probably control and coping. But um, there's big correlation between depression and hospital readmissions for this population. So those are some of the findings that I think are, that stand out the most and that are really something for practitioners to think about. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing with us kind of some of the results of this systematic review. Um, I want to ask if any of our listeners are interested in looking into some of these specific interventions more or just want to see more results from the systematic review, where can they find those resources? Um, well, so this review is being published in AJOT. It's been um, accepted. It's in, in, the, in the process. I can't tell you exactly when it's going to publish, be published, but it will be. So that, that's coming. Currently, the major findings are included in the AOTA critically appraised topics that are found on the evidence-based practice website. So right now, you could find the post-acute care critically appraised topics, or CATS, on the AOTA evidence-based practice website. And so that will provide uh, more detail about the interventions and address the, the six areas that emerged in the findings. Awesome. So we'll keep an eye out for that, that age-out article. I want to ask a couple questions now that are focused more on clinical applications for practitioners. And Julie, I think it's a good idea before... Uh, we dive into these questions to ask you if you could talk more about the role of the quality department at AOTA and how you relate evidence to payment and adding value to the healthcare system, just to give some of our listeners a little bit more of a background. Sure. The quality department at AOTA, we, we serve a variety of functions. We're a cross-functional team and we're a part of practice improvement. So we look at ensuring that quality outcomes and quality care are a focus of occupational therapy. Like you said, we're looking at the integration of evidence-based practice, regulations, payment reform, measurement, and outcomes, um, tying all that together to provide tools and information to practitioners um, who are trying to give best practice occupational therapy. So how do we do that? That's it's a big job. You know, that means ensuring occupational therapies at the table in national quality conversations and that 
occupational therapists and assistants have resources to be able to do that. Um, for example, as I'm sure many listeners already know, there's a movement in healthcare away from fee-for-service or paying for each visit toward pay payment for outcomes. So sometimes you'll hear that called volume to value. It's an ongoing process, but one that's going to continue to move forward over the next few years. So being able to have evidence such as this that shows occupational therapist ties to positive outcomes, it's very helpful at showing payers, for example, Medicare, Medicaid, and other private insurers that we are a valuable service and that we can actually help decrease overall costs to the healthcare system while at the same time providing better outcomes. So we really are working to tie all of that together, um, and that's why evidence-based practice and quality are part of that practice improvement initiative at AOTA. Awesome. Thank you for, for giving us a, a little more insight into to what the quality department does and, and how important its functions are. And I, I love the intersection and collaboration between evidence-based practice and, and quality the quality department and, and its goals. So Julie, I want to ask you, how would you recommend a practitioner determine when the evidence-supported interventions found in, in this liter literature review are appropriate to apply with their patients? Sure. So really, anytime is a good time to use evidence-based practice. Um, you know, keeping abreast of the literature and reading studies it can really help you determine which interventions can add value, um, either to the patient that you're working with or like Beth mentioned, the system you're working in. There's a lot of opportunity for occupational therapists, of course, to implement these with clients, but in addition, working on quality improvement teams in hospitals or skilled nursing facilities, it's really a great area of practice. Um, and when we're talking about working with populations, that's really what uh, working on a quality team will allow you to do, provide that insight and information to the facility um, to help improve outcomes. Like Beth said, some of these were quality improvement studies, um, and that's an area of focus. You don't always hear occupational therapy involved in, but we have so, so much to contribute in that area. And that's the area I actually came from, was working in quality. Um, and occupational therapists and assistants, our background is just really perfect for that environment. So I really encourage people if, to find out if there's a quality committee or a quality improvement team at your facility, because you can really help make a difference by utilizing these concepts. Uh, I, I love that recommendation. And I think as occupational therapy practitioners, naturally, everyone wants to help their patients achieve the best possible health outcomes. And now focusing on how they can improve the whole system so even more people can achieve the best possible outcomes is, is very appealing to practitioners. Um, so that's a, a, a great thing to encourage our listeners and, and all practitioners to do. Julie, also you shared uh, some examples of how a practitioner could implement exercise with their patients. Could you share some other case examples of how a practitioner could implement some of these interventions we discussed uh, with their patients in a post-acute care setting? Sure. Um, and I'll kind of take a look at it kind of as a whole. Um, and of course, I always take that quality perspective because that's what I focus on. Um, but when looking at process and quality improvement, I think sometimes people delay in getting started, right? It can be overwhelming to look at all the evidence or maybe we want to make sure everything's perfect before we start. But what's really important is getting started. Um, process and quality improvement, it's really about change and taking action. 
So when looking to get started, you know, start small with an area where you really think you can have a positive effect uh, for your clients. Um, and I always suggest too, see if you have any data available at your facility. Data-driven decision-making, it really can help you focus on what's important, where you are, and what environment you're in. So, for example, if you're at a facility where there's been a large number or an increase in the number of falls, that might be where you want to start. You know, if you don't have the data, that's okay. Um, start with what you've seen, and maybe then you can be a part of helping to develop this culture of collecting data and using data-driven decision-making. I'm sure many people have heard of a tool called PDSA, which is a Plan, Do, Study Act, which really helps you think through any process or quality improvement initiative. You know, you always, you plan what you're going to do. You make a change. It might be a smaller incremental one. Maybe you take something from the systematic review that was found to have strong evidence. And then you take a look at what you've done. Did your intervention have the effect you thought it would? Is there something you would change in the way you did it? Either way is fine, but then you're going to act. Either you change your process and try it again, or if it worked perfectly, which you know typically doesn't happen the first time, then maybe you can Im implement it with a larger group across your facility. And like I mentioned, you know, occupational therapy practitioners are great members of quality improvement teams, uh, but sometimes we aren't going to be asked to be on that team. So we may have to do that asking ourselves or, or find out about it. But um, typically, teams like that, people are always looking for more members. So if you're a willing volunteer, you might be able to get a seat at that table. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Just a, a couple more questions before we get to our conclusion now. Julie, how would you recommend practitioners consult and use quality initiatives to influence their personal practice and their organization as a whole? Yeah, that's a great question. I usually recommend that, you know, people prepare themselves to have these conversations about quality with patients, with payers, or perhaps with leadership at their organization. You might want to create a list of, of studies such as this one that show the value of occupational therapy. You can offer to provide this evidence when talking to people or um, to advocating for the role of occupational therapy in your facility. We also need to, as practitioners, be aware of what outcomes and reporting requirements our payers or our facilities are looking for. Know what quality outcomes you're striving for. Uh, for example, on our AOTA Volume to Value website, we do have some evaluation checklists for skilled nursing, home health, and outpatient environments. And those evaluation checklists list the quality reporting programs that are involved in those areas and also the outcomes that CMS is looking for with patients. So those kind of tools can really help you just make sure you're thinking about quality and outcomes in your daily practice. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I, I want to thank you both again for this interview. Uh, I, again, I just want to emphasize how interesting it is to me to see the intersection of, of evidence-based practice and, and quality initiatives. Hearing from both of you how you look at this evidence and analyze it and, and are able to use your expertise and knowledge and, and making recommendations based off of it. Um, that's a process that hopefully all practitioners can, can learn to develop um, and use in, in their day-to-day -day life. Um, so it's, it's really helpful, I think, to hear each of your, your perspectives. I know, Beth, you already mentioned uh, on the EBP page of AOTA.org, people can find this systematic review and some of the results. And then to be on the lookout for an article in AJOT 
Are there any other resources that either of you would recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about this topic? Sure. On the AOTA website, um, our page, aota.org forward slash value, will provide you with a lot of value, volume to value resources. Um, the links to the evaluation checklist I talked about earlier, um, and also information on some different payment reform models out there. And we always work to keep that updated because, of course, uh, regulations and policy change frequently. Also, if questions come up about quality, um, we're happy to answer them. So um, everyone should feel free to email us at quality at AOTA.org with any questions. Perfect. And Julie, if you want to email me a, a link to that page um, on the site and a link to that email, I can make that available in the episode description once this yeah. is published. Okay. Thanks. No, thank you. All right. This brings us now to our golden nugget segment, which Beth, I know you're familiar with and you've already shared a golden nugget, but we're asking you for another today. Um, so this question is for both of you. If you could share one piece of advice or give one clinical recommendation to our listeners, what would you say? Yeah, there's, uh, there's a quote that I really like from one of the pioneers in the quality field, W. Edwards Deming, and that quote is, quality is everyone's responsibility. So my advice is to integrate quality and outcomes into your everyday practice. You know, don't wait for someone else to do it. Don't be afraid to get started. Thinking about this every day, it really will have a positive impact on your patients and the healthcare system. I think the most important thing and the reason we did this post-acute care review is, um, as mentioned earlier, it's really important for OTs to be aware of these kind of, um, or practitioners as a whole, to be aware of these kind of issues related to things like preventable adverse events and how that influences um, reimbursement, quality of care you know, quality service, um, and that OTs can really be involved, whether it's in an individual intervention, um, which they are typically are involved in, so that's not a big thing. But this idea of maybe connecting more at the facility level and working with quality teams um, to give the OT practitioner um, perspective, because we're very well suited to analyzing uh, systems and things like that, and to having a really person-centered approach. So that is probably the take-home message: is to really think, you know, have uh, practitioners think about the fact that this is something that is important, which I'm sure they do agree with that and get. But that there's ways they could be involved in facilities or in um, different settings that really can address these big ticket I, um, issues at the individual and facility level. Awesome. Thank you both so much uh, for sharing those nuggets and for sharing all the knowledge you have in this interview. Um, I know I'm feeling encouraged and enabled to, to seek out involvement with the quality team and seeking out more resources and, and really taking initiative to improve the quality of care that, that my patients are going to receive, but also the quality of care that everyone who enters the, the facility I'll be with um, will receive as well. Um, so thank you both so much. Thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity and it's good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.